what I learned over that 28 years plus the hike I did before that from Mexico to Canada in one trip, what you learn is to really two things I think that are vital to a happy life, actually. One is being comfortable with your own company and in your own skin. And the second is being flexible. You can't be outside for any length of time without having to adapt to the world around you, the conditions around you, the weather around you. And I really, I draw on that almost every day. When things are going great, it's easy. (laughs) But when you hit bumps in the road, how you handle those, there's not a whole lot you can do about it when you're out in the rain and walking along. You have a decision. You can hunker down or you can keep walking. And I just think that's kind of applicable to life. When you hit a bump in the road, How you take it, how you respond to it is your choice. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Back in fall and winter of this year, we began a deep dive into the greater stories of our outside world, from the share of what proforestation means to preserve and protect our planet, to explorations of new lands that have been set aside, like the San Vicente Redwood Forests. I've got my trail pass right here. All of this to really mean that we're working to inspire people to get outdoors, to connect with nature, to commune with what it means. So today we're going to continue that journey as we explore America's public lands with Jeffrey H. Ryan, author of a new book aptly titled, This Land Was Saved for You and Me. I know you probably can't help thinking of the rhyming song itself right now or just the tune of it. This land was saved for you and me. In this case, it's a deep dive into how Gifford Pinchot, or Pinchot probably, Frederick Law Olmsted, and a band of foresters rescued America's public lands. Now, Jeffrey, the author, he's passionate about the outdoors and the conservation of public land. His work has been cited in Forbes, USA Today, Appalachia, and other notable publications. He is the author of two more books, Appalachian Odyssey and Blazing Ahead. He lives in one of my favorite cities in the world, Portland, Maine. Jeffrey H. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Corinna. Thank you for your lovely introduction. Well, I have to put the H in there as many times as possible, right? Because otherwise people go to Google you and they will see like a dozen and I don't know, or so Jeffrey Ryan's in the world. Including the one who invented Super Mario. (laughs) (laughs) That one might actually be trending now too. So that would be harder to kind of emerge from. So I just want to thank you for setting aside the time for taking the time to actually send me an autographed book. So often I get these directly from the publisher and it won't have that little word of transcription written in there. I mean, you just said, thanks for all you do with appreciation for all you do, Jeffrey Ryan. It meant something to me. I know it may be small, but it goes to show that sometimes just a little John Hancock can make somebody feel very much appreciated. Thank you. 
So let's talk first about what inspired you to write this book, the journey that you've had thus far, and really what you can expect to learn as you pick up and read this book's pages. Well, everything sort of led me to this fork in the road or in the trail, as it were. As you mentioned before, first book was about a 28-year hike on the Appalachian Trail with a friend of mine. We did a different section of the trail every year until we completed it over almost three decades. And when I was writing that book, I was compelled to explore how the trail came into being in the first place. So that was the, the impetus for Blazing Ahead. But when I was writing Blazing Ahead, what I found out was the very same guy who came up with the idea for the Appalachian Trail, a forester by the name of Benton Mackay, was involved in the creation of the Wilderness Society and the setting aside of wilderness in America. And so that started me on the journey of exploring who were the people involved in the Wilderness Society and led me backwards through time until I found the common thread with our public lands sort of began with Frederick Law Olmsted, the creator of Central Park, and started doing my own deep dive into conservation history from the aspect of trying to do a sort of finding your roots version of American conservation history and finding that so many people and events were intertwined. It just led me to naturally want to write this book in a way that I think the subject has never really been delved into before. Wow. You've alluded to a couple of things I want to touch back on. First of which you said you run a hike and, and it took you 28 years to complete. <laughs> I want to know what the longest stretch of that hike was and what you might have learned along the way. The longest stretch of that hike was uh, 17 days without a resupply. So we were carrying everything that we were going to be eating over that period by design. And what I learned over that 28 years plus the hike I did before that from Mexico to Canada in one trip, what you learn is to really two things I think that are vital to a happy life, actually. One is being comfortable with your own company and in your own skin. And the second is being flexible. You can't be outside for any length of time without having to adapt to the world around you, the conditions around you, the weather around you. And I really, I draw on that almost every day. When things are going great, it's easy. <laughs> but when you hit bumps in the road, how you handle those, there's not a whole lot you can do about it when you're out in the rain and walking along. You have a decision. You can hunker down or you can keep walking. And I just think that's kind of applicable to life. When you hit a bump in the road, how you take it, how you respond to it is your choice. And oftentimes I think it's an opportunity to sort of sit back and assess what's happening in a way that when we're running around trying to get from here to there, we don't often do. When you've gone through an experience like I have in hiking as much as I have, it just helps me. It reminds me to take that deep breath and say, the world isn't falling apart. I got a flat tire. I have a spare in the trunk. <laughs> I know how to fix this and I'll be a little late to work. It's just one of those things that helps you, I guess, gain a healthy perspective in life. I have to say, hearing the tale of somebody taking a hike for a 17-day stretch at a time, at a time, 
has me a little bit jealous of all the men in the world. And I say that simply because as a woman who enjoys the great outdoors a lot and who loves to go hiking, I have shied from doing long stretch hikes because I have this thing called menstruation. And as a girl, that's tough to manage when you're camping, let alone when you're out on these long hikes and just doing backpacking. Because unless you're somebody who's willing to just take, let's say, a birth control pill every day and skip your periods or skip your cycles, if that little <laughs> inconvenience comes about, there's smell to worry about, there are predators that are going to smell this elevated sense too, or you're just self-conscious about it. So it's probably the one thing that has kept me from doing these longer hikes. Now, I'm probably coming closer to the days when I will no longer have that problem. I'm 46 now. And honestly, this is something on my bucket list. I want to go for a multiple week hike along the Pacific Coast Trail in California. I think it's absolutely beautiful. And I think I could choose a time of year to do so when it wouldn't be too terrible insofar as weather's concerned. Of course, recent events here on the Central Coast have me questioning that. Yes. I mean, it's almost April and we just had a crazy hailstorm come through here that just shredded much of Northern California. So I don't say that lightly. It's interesting you say that because in all the reports I've been listening to lately, they hearken back to 1983. It hasn't been this bad since 83. And 83 was in fact the year when I and two friends did the Mexico to Canada trip and hit those snows. So a couple of us have been emailing and texting back and forth about, gee, it's back <laughs> all these years later, 40 years later, because we hit those snows. We were still at times knee deep and thigh deep in snow in Oregon going up through and it was perseverance personified. <laughs> yeah. And it can dump in the Siskiyous. That's no joke. I grew up in Southern Oregon in a little town called Ashland. And so I was quite familiar with the outdoor world there, the Rogue Valley, rivers, the mountains. I mean, I didn't have the ocean the way I have here in, on the coast of California, but I certainly had plenty of the great outdoors to keep me company. I love Ashland. That was right on the trail. So yeah, Mount McLaughlin and all that area up through there. Beautiful. Yeah. And I think I always get the name of it wrong, but it's like there's a bunch of lakes that are connected or are on the same trail system. I think they call them seven sisters or something to that effect. Right. The three sisters. Three sisters. See, like I can't. North, <laughs> south and middle. Yeah. Yeah. You know better than me. I was 13 when I moved away from Southern Oregon. So it has been some time. They have a Shakespeare festival in town. Yeah. And the irony is that I grew up there and never visited it. <laughs> <laughs> Reason to go back. Yeah, I know. Now, let's make this a little bit more real for people. Now that you've gone from these amazingly long hikes, let's say they're not able to spend 17 days out there, but there are benefits to being outdoors for those long periods. You mentioned that you get this perspective, like perhaps it's your place in the world. What more would you have to share? What do you think they could benefit from even a shorter hike? Unplugging, number one, A number one, just shutting the phone off and being in the moment is just a spectacular recharge in and of itself, even if it's for three or four hours. If you just go out and do that, and interestingly enough, it's not a new phenomenon. When Frederick Law Olmsted was advocating for the creation of Yosemite as a park in 1864, he was talking about the regenerative power of scenery. 
and how important it is not only to our well-being mentally and physically, but interestingly enough, he said, once we have had that experience, we will always be able to pull it back whenever we need it and be able to have that experience refresh us again. And what an amazing insight to make in 1864. Yeah, anyone who confronts tragedy in their lives or a lot of pain. I'll give you, for instance, I had my wisdom teeth extracted. I had pulled out when I was already 19 years old, and I had two that had started to come out past the rest of the tooth line, and then another two that were embedded because they never emerged, right? And so we took them out all in one session while I was awake, and the fourth one, they go to crack in my jaw, and this is surgery. It's under the skin, right? The pain meds wore off. So I felt the whole thing and where I went in my head, because they basically said, look, I've given you the limit of how much I can give you in a single setting without running into some risks. So either we pack you up and you go home with a broken tooth in your mouth or we get it out. And so I just grabbed onto those arms and said, let's do this. And I went to my favorite beach in my mind. And I just kept saying like almost like a mantra in my head, like spending time with one of my best friends, walking down Four Mile Beach, and just like enabled me to put my part of my brain, because the pain was still very much there and very much real, but part of my brain and this space that was a sanctuary for me. And so you can have these dramatic moments like that, or just a moment even where you just want to transport yourself to a more peaceful state. You can close your eyes and open your mind. And hear the waves. Yes. Absolutely. Hear the waves, the birds, smell the smells. You know, you get like that kind of brackish scent in the air. I have a hike I take every day around my neighborhood. And I'm very lucky in that on one side, I um, see rolling hills and chaparral with oak trees and cows grazing. And then on the other side of the hill that I'm on is redwood forest. And so I take this circuitous path that's kind of probably the shape of a teardrop with my dog every morning. And the furthest point from my doorstep is what I call my meditation spot. Now, I don't really stop there long. It's like a pause. My dog might go pee and then I continue on my way because I got things to do. But there is this beautiful maple tree there that I call her my friend Maple. <laughs> There's a little redwood grove. And I just pause for a minute and I listen to the water going through the creek and I might touch a tree or two and just feel like I've centered my day and I'm ready for anything. And I know that I'm lucky in being able to do that. But so many of us could have the opportunity to do something like that if we just integrated it into our daily lives, however small it might be. So I think it's powerful. Nature is powerful being reminded, even if we take our hikes in the rain, like I am known to go out there in my trench coat essentially goes down to my, past my knees with my dog and my coffee cup that was showing here, but it has my trail pass for the San Vicente Redwoods on it. Great. To explore a moment in nature, even if part of that is just walking on paved earth. Absolutely. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. It's it's really living life at three miles an hour. So many of us, so not living at three miles an hour and just taking the time, even if it's a 20 minute a day walk, you don't have to get in the car. As you say, you don't have to get in the car and drive somewhere. You can take an urban walk. It's all beneficial. But I think just that time to be unplugged and just be is it's a reward 
I look forward to it every day. Now, in your book, you tell the story of little known heroes. I mean, I didn't know half these names. So I was hoping that you could pick perhaps one of them to tell a little bit about their story. Perhaps they're, for some odd reason, your favorite. Oh, I think I have to go with Franklin Benjamin Huff, whose parents played a an interesting name trick on him. <laughs> In many ways, I wish they had just named him Benjamin Franklin Huff. It would be easier. But anyway, Franklin Benjamin Huff was a guy who grew up in upstate New York and was from a family of fairly well-to-do means. He went to medical school in Ohio. He practiced medicine for two years, and he read a book by a guy named George Perkins Marsh, which interestingly was also written in 1864, and it's called Man and Nature. And what he had said, what Marsh had said in the book was that he had observed that man was having a negative impact on the environment particularly in the form of clear-cutting forests, but in other ways as well. And so when Huff read this book, it had a really profound effect on him, so profound, in fact, that he quit his two-year-old growing medical practice to travel throughout the United States and document the species of trees and how they grew in their preferred environment for growing, which was practically unheard of in the 1890s when he was doing this, 1880s and 1890s. And he compiled a 600-page book for Congress about how trees grew, what assets we had in the country, and how seeds propagated, and on and on it went. He was really one of the groundbreaking people behind the forestry movement at a time when the vast majority of people, including the timber barons themselves, thought that forests were inexhaustible and they would just keep cutting. After all, at some point, they were thinking they were inexhaustible and they could just keep cutting and oftentimes would leave devastated landscapes and unpaid taxes in their wake. And so it was Huff who was one of these early people on board that was telling everyone who would listen to him that there has to be a better way, that maybe we should start looking at this timber as a resource, not just something that's inexhaustible because we're going to get into trouble. Mm. Well, I mean, we've all seen this play out, right? Like even members of the Forestry Service will say, oh, well, we have to cut down these trees because it's a fire hazard. But then they're taking out the old growth and leaving behind the new growth, which are more of a fire hazard than the trees they took out. Because there's been such this integration, I think, with the lumber industry, and we see that in particular happening throughout the Pacific Northwest, which has become essentially where much of our logging happens on the West Coast. I wonder if you want to comment on that, or if there are ways that perhaps you would encourage our community to, to get involved or make themselves more aware so that they could also support the health of preservation of these forests? Yeah, there are really two different things going on with the forest. There is the eternal struggle between harvesting and sustainable harvesting. And we have recreation that is um, oftentimes trying to use the same land for the same, for trying to serve different purposes with the land. 
And then the third part of it is that we have to have wilderness areas, which are essentially untouched, which is the third part of my book. So the way it kind of played out, just to backtrack a little bit, is the public parks came first, not the national parks, but the state and public parks, such as Central Park and Yosemite and others like that. The forests actually, the managed forests actually came second and then the national parks. And then finally, there was this recognition that, okay, we have all these different kinds of parks and managed lands, but we really need this third kind of thing, which is wilderness. And we need that part protected and left whole. It's a good thing that that piece was added because in terms of climate change, we need those wilderness areas more than ever, but we also need, to your earlier point, the forest to be managed in a way that allows the trees to grow old enough to become effective, continue to serve their purpose as effective carbon sinks, but also have those generations of trees after them growing to a size large enough so that when those big trees are at the end of their life and need to be harvested, or die, um, those can be harvested and the younger ones can take their place as the carbon sinks. There's a way to manage the land smarter. We're getting there. And um, there's a way to rewild lands that have been cut and are not in the public domain and can be purchased for the purpose of becoming wilderness and rewilded. And there's a lot of that going on in the Northeast right now. Well, I have to tell you the story of San Vicente Redwood Forest as as I know it from this recent opening. So what happened is we had several different groups come together, buy essentially out chunks of land that were going to become part of this open trust that would be public lands, open to the public to come hike their trail systems and also set aside land for the wild habitat of the puma or the mountain lion, for instance, an important apex predator out here. So we have successfully been able to do that. There's a long-term plan to connect different trail systems and go through dairy and things like that. However, in the midst of this trail system getting ready for everyone with almost a million dollars just in preparation spent, we had the forest fires whip through Santa Cruz mountains. And so many of the trees that made this forest a forest were burned to the ground, becoming cinder. Many of them had to be removed for safety reasons. Out of something like 5,000 trees that were assessed, 1,000 had to be removed. So that was reducing the count again by another 20%. And now we've had a new set of storms come through since the trailheads opened in December. I got to be there for a press event that was to a prelude to their opening to date. And we had so many more trees fall down or have to be removed, that it doesn't really feel like much of a forest anymore. Yikes. And so it's partially because it's on this ridgeline, at least the part where they've set aside the trail system. But a lot of the trees were kind of older growth madrones, some redwoods, some oak. And because they had been so ravaged by drought and then fire, and now this deluge of water... And then winds that were like 80, 90 miles an hour, snow, hail, all of that wasn't the issue. It was the amount of water in a short amount of time 
We had something like a total of, I think, 14 now atmospheric rivers come through California this season. And most of them have hit there. Right. So what do you do? That's the devastation that Marsh was talking about in 1864. It's brutal. Well, now it's like this land has to be rewilded. It's more shrub now than tree. Right. And so I've been going about once a month since it opened. And each time there's more trees lost. And so it's perhaps they were hoping some of those trees were going to come back. And so they left them out of that 5,000, but they just couldn't take it. So they took, they, they took too much of a beating. Too exposed, right. They have to get beyond the small stage, the sprout stage, and get strong enough. And they're battling the odds. That's hard. That's harsh. It's pretty harsh. So my hope is that we see the forest recover, but I'm anticipating it being more shrub than, than tree for a while. For a while. I have an interesting story about that. So I climbed Mount St. Helens the first year it was open after the blast. And it was absolutely devastating, as you can imagine. All you could see was a gray landscape as far as the eye could see. And 30 years later, I went back, and that was a couple of years ago, and did the same climb with the same friends. And it was awe-inspiring how Mother Nature came back in the wake of that when you thought it would be like throwing seeds in the bottom of an old wood stove full of ash. There's no way. And not only has Mother Nature come back, but come back in a huge way. And But what's really striking is those old trees, many of them are still standing that were burnt in place. They look like gray flagpoles of these Douglas firs growing up through the understory, which is now starting to take over. And you can actually see the progression. We won't be able to see that visual for much longer but it's like a marker in time. Here's what was here. Here's what is coming. And it's really inspiring to see that, yes, it takes time, but it will and can happen. Yeah. Well, it's a blink of the eye. In terms of geologic time, that's a blink of an eye. And the other thing that's really striking is we were hiking along the edge of the boundary of the park, and you could see the monument, the volcanic monument, St. Helens, where Mother Nature was allowed to take over, and right at the boundary, growing right up to the edge of it, is the professionally forested <laughs> monoculture that has been put in by the forest industry. And it's really, wow. I mean, this is the way it was meant to be, and this is the way it's being force-fed. It's quite staggering. I remember my youth. My father lived in California, and my mother still lived in Oregon. And so we were driving up north through the Siskiyos a couple times a year at least, right? And I remember seeing how much clear cutting used to take place. Like just entire mountainsides laid bare, all in Northern California and up into Oregon. Thankfully, we're emerging from that. That doesn't really happen so much anymore. No, thank God. It's interesting when we hiked up through there when you say that, because we went through a section of Southern Oregon where we could literally tell how many miles we had done because you'd hit a mile of trail through the forest and then a mile through the clear cut and then a mile through the forest. It was that checkerboarded at the time. Yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. It was really like, wow, what are we doing? But Unfortunately, that has changed. Yeah. That practice. Now, I wanted to go back to your book for a minute because I realized we talked for a moment about some of the unsung heroes in your book, but there's also some nemeses in here. 
<laughs> yes. And I'm pointing in particular to the Secretary of the Interior, Richard Ballinger, who became Gifford Pinchot's nemesis in the public scandal that would cost Pinchot his job. Or is it Pinchot? Yeah, Pinchot. Yeah. Pinchot. C'est français. So that's why I was like. <laughs> Very much so. Okay. So can you tell that story for our audience? Yes. It's really long, but in a nutshell, Ballinger was put into the post and immediately started battling with Pinchot. And what ended up happening was some of Pinchot's minions went to bat for the forestry service and Ballinger was trying to undo them. And it blew up in the form of Alaska timberlands. And Ballinger was basically trying to orchestrate the illegal selling of timberlands without anybody knowing to a syndicate of wealthy timber barons. And a couple of Pinchot's protégés got wind of it and spoke to the press about it. And the whole thing blew up in a very public kerfuffle that blew up on the front pages of the newspapers and became a great embarrassment to the president. And he sort of asked them to please come to grips with this behind closed doors. But he didn't know that Pinchot was not going to do that. And Pinchot made some very public pronouncements against what Ballinger was doing and ended up losing his job because of it. Basically, Pinchot didn't have TR, Teddy Roosevelt, protecting him anymore. And as soon as Roosevelt's presidency ended, Pinchot kept acting as if he had carte blanche over the forestry policy. And it was sort of like Wile E. Coyote walking out over the cliff. And I think he fully realized what he was doing. He was trying to advocate for the forestry, that the forestry department that he had created. And he just went a little too far for the comfort level of his bosses, found himself fired, very unceremoniously fired, the first head of the Forest Service. And in typical Pinchot fashion, he went into work the next day and made a speech to his former employees and got a standing ovation and left town to go back to uh, Pennsylvania, where he would go on to become two-time Pennsylvania governor. But it was ugly. Well, I think as many things in politics are want to be. So <laughs> it was good that he exposed it. It really needed to be. So as it stands today, I was hoping I kind of wrap up part of our conversation. And as we prepare for the, the close of this show, hear from you specifically what you're most proud of with this book, because I know this was quite the undertaking. It came about not as a self-published effort. So many authors these days are self-published, but this is a publication of Stackpole Books, who also reached out to me after we connected about having you on the show. So I, I want to give you the space to talk about that. Thank you. Yeah, what I'm absolutely most proud of in this book is that I was able to basically boil down the history of the development of public lands into three really important handoffs over a hundred years time. And it's really, it starts with, as I mentioned, Frederick Law Olmsted, who just a fantastic figure. He just had so many insights that are mind boggling today, but um, the importance of nature, the importance of scenery to our health, but also becoming the preeminent landscape designer in American history and working at the Biltmore Estate 
and having the opportunity to give Gifford Pinchot his basically his first job and his first chance at showing that forestry was a viable business, that managing forests as opposed to just cutting them down willy-nilly was a viable profession. And then Pinchot's own hires, the, the first foresters, coming to the, the realization that forestry was serving a purpose, but we also needed these sacred wilderness areas to become part of our patchwork, part of the American way, was really essential and a huge uphill battle. Getting the Forest Service established was a, a major uphill battle, but nothing like creating the wilderness areas and that took uh, decades to get done. It actually took from 1935 to 1965 to actually have that take root and become an important part of our public lands mosaic, if you will. So I guess what I'm most proud of is making that connection, researching enough to make that connection, and then making it real through those very important people and what they were facing politically um, and philosophically to try to earn the trust and get other people on board with this way of thinking, which was entirely new in every case. For Olmsted, building a park in the middle of an urban environment in 1858 and some of the thinking that he brought into Central Park and in terms of identifying it as a need for urban dwellers to have nature in their midst is mind-blowing. No one was thinking that way back then. And frankly, it's what makes New York City livable. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And that's what he said, that not everyone had the means like he did to travel and get to places, but we could certainly make those places accessible to everyone who was already there. And Again, for someone to be advocating for that then and having the insight just to bring that idea forth was incredible. And then again, another really interesting fact about him was in the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, he did the same thing. He created an island in the middle of a World's Fair that was bustling with tens of thousands of people and said, we need to have an island for people to go to and get away from the throngs of people and just be able to sit under a tree. And for someone to have that kind of an insight in a very other kind of environment is a pretty neat thing. Yeah. Well, you're preaching to the choir here and something that you also reveal in this story, you talk about really the first landscape designers. My father is a landscape architect. And so back in the day when he got that degree, it was how he did that was a double major in botany and architecture because they didn't have the FSLA or whatever the third party certifications and all that stuff are required to now bear a, a title of, a, I think it's ASLA. Yeah. Anyway, as it stands, he used to take me on walks through the forest and just point to a tree and go, do you know what kind of tree that is? And I wouldn't know. And we'd talk about it and he'd tell me what the genus and the subspecies was and what kind of animals lived in it. And so my connection to nature from a very early age was established with this sort of inquisitive nature and the joy of it from my father's eyes that I wish every child could grow up with. And what I will just say across the board is I think 
it's critically imperative that we get to know where we live. And I'm going to say this on behalf of Paul Hawken again, who I brought on my podcast well over a year ago now to talk about his work, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. He said, if you were to really press me on what one thing we could all do to save this planet, right? To turn around everything and get to a space where we have a global cooling again, it would be to know where you live, to really get to know where you live because you don't. You don't really know where you live. You don't really know the nature. You don't know the history. You don't know what was there before the street is that is there now was. And as somebody who studied archaeology and anthropology, which I don't find a mystery at all. <laughs> I mean, just if you hear about my background, it's like, oh, okay, of course I wanted to understand the history, the thing that came before the written word, the, how we were in nature before we had all these constructs around us, when we were living with the land in concert with it, as opposed to on top of it and modifying it to bend to our will. I mean, that's what I was curious about. I was curious about what life was like before. To know where we live is to care about where we live. Right. I live with this quote that Aldo Leopold said, which is, I'm paraphrasing, but the noblest thing a human being can do is to live on a piece of land without spoiling it. And I think about that a lot. If we all take into account on a daily basis what our impact is, whether we actually own the piece of land we live on or not, that level of respect and understanding for what we're doing, I think is critical. It's critical to both our well-being and our survival. Yeah, well, perhaps I'm a little bit of a wingnut myself in this natural nature-driven world. The piece of property that we bought where we live in Scotts Valley, it abuts an open space preserve. So obviously I love open space, right? <laughs> but part of our land is on the undeveloped part of this land is part of that forest which I've just simply put a simple goat fencing up to keep my dog in. So she has an undeveloped part of land to be a dog, to go crazy and dig her dens and do whatever and bark at the coyotes or the raccoons and whatever. But I also have two old growth oaks on my property. And as somebody who loves oak and who also understands that they don't necessarily tend to be the most stable, they'll split off a limb when they get really big and old, I chose to cable them. And some of my friends thought I was insane for spending $1,500 or more on oak trees that don't really affect my living space on the property to cable them and provide them with some protection from basically losing enough of a limb that they'll end up dying. Right. And I have not regretted it. They're still standing. How many years later? We moved in here 2009. So this is like 14 years later. They've withstood the droughts and they've withstood the winds and the incredible rain that we've had. And I'm hoping that they'll be here and still thriving by the time I pass this mortar coil on. So if I can have a little patch that I'm affecting, this little patch, I want it to be healthy. And so I extend that into how I garden. <laughs> I've stopped caring about the rodents that tear up my lawn because I've only got a little patch anyways, and it's really just there so my kids can experience grass that's like comfortable to lie on in the shade. And then I have things like strawberries planted under my plum trees and kind of in the shade, but they get really super sweet and nice and just ground covers that are more natural and that connect my kids to the food sources that we have, planting myriad of different fruiting trees, and then things like amla berry because it's exotic and you can't find it locally. 
and then just creating my own compost to then use in the garden. Because if we build this connection to not only nature, but the food that we procure and we understand where it comes from and we work it a little bit, maybe we'll change our habits <laughs> or maybe just I will raise my two boys to be more mindful human beings that are building a better future for everybody. Wonderful. Anyway, I think that was my soapbox for the day. That's good. It's a good soapbox. <laughs> I so appreciate you coming on the show, the work that you do. I really do love your writing and I appreciate the stories within it and even having throwing a nemesis in here and there. Or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we could talk more, but really it's a joy. And I so thank you for the work. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It was a great conversation. And here's to getting outside as much as we can. Yeah, let's get outside. To connect with Jeffrey H. Ryan and get his new book, visit his website, jeffryanauthor.com, or you can visit show notes for this episode and click the link. For complete transcripts, expanded show notes, and bonus features, visit caremorebebetter.com. While there, sign up for our newsletter and receive weekly tips with our hashtag BeBetterChallenge. Subscribers also receive a welcome gift. It's our five-step guide to help unleash your inner activist. If you have feedback or you want to suggest a future show or guest, you can always send me an email note directly from the website or even send me a voicemail just by clicking that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Now, before I part, I just want to say this. This Land Was Made for You and Me is a beautiful historical book. It will help you think differently about the world that we're leaving behind. So I hope you'll pick it up and enjoy the read as much as I have. Thank you. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even open our minds with more open spaces and create a better future together. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.